Uh, I'm going to jump right into today's message with our reading from Romans chapter 7. It's a longer one, and it's one that can be, if we're going to be honest, a little bit more confusing. So you're definitely going to need to put on your uh, listening ears, uh, your paying attention pants, however you want to phrase it, because uh, Paul is going to get real deep with us real quick. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 15. Let's see if, oh, it is working. Fantastic. Again, thanks be to um, uh, Kellen and Sonia and all your kids and pulling all this media and sound and lighting together. Uh, you're just hitting it out of the park. So here's our word for the day. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, <laughs> this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see that another law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind, I am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Thanks be to God. This is his word for us. A couple weeks ago, I was texting with a dear friend from high school, and uh, she had just sadly, tragically, uh, her, her beloved uh, dog, Roman, um, passed away. Uh, I was so grateful that this summer on my sabbatical, I had a chance to visit with him, and I got to meet that dog. But, but sadly, she, she lost her dog, so we were texting back, back and forth, and I was just offering some prayers and consolation. And she sent me a story, said, I just, I've always loved this story. And uh, I thought maybe you could use it sometime in, in a message. And here it is. I was like, I know exactly when I'm going to use that story. She shared with me the story. It's an old Native American parable of a father talking to his son. And the father tells his son, everyone has two wolves inside of them. One wolf is violent, wild, and destructive. The other wolf is disciplined, wise, and generous. They are fighting inside of you. The son asks, which wolf will win? And his father answered, the wolf that will win is the wolf that is fed. Some good wisdom in that story. And in our passage today, the Bible is in many ways talking about two wolves at war inside each and every one of us. One wolf is wild and violent and destructive. The other wolf, as the parable says, wants to be disciplined, wants to be wise, wants to be generous. And we are encouraged to feed the wolf that wants to do the good, that wants to do the right thing, the discipline, the wise, the generous life. Thanks be to God, our God goes further. 
Our God is telling us, though, that we are not just left alone with two wolves waging war inside of us, but that we, as we're going to see, have a victor. We have a victor in Jesus Christ who definitively defeats the wolf of sin and death, of violence, of destruction in our world and in our lives. And even more, we do not just have Christ our victor, but we have the Holy Spirit, our helper and our comforter, who now dwells inside of us and will help us along this path of greater sanctification, of living a more godly and righteous life that better reflects the goodness and the grace and the love of our God. So today, we are going to be looking to the one who helps us win the battle over sin in our lives. We're gonna be calling upon that helper and that counselor to be with us daily, moment by moment, as we seek to live a godly and glorifying life to him. But we're already getting deep, so let's take a moment and let's step back and let's recap where we're at in our series. We are in this series called Low Anthropology, and I know that is a fancy term, but here's what we're setting up. We live in a world, we live in a culture that always pushing high anthropology. What's an example of high anthropology? Expressions like this. Winners never quit and, yeah, you know it. I figured you know it. Winners never quit and quitters never win. We, for good intentions, try to be fair, for the best of reasons often, we raise this high anthropology. You can do it, you can achieve it, you can conquer it, you can master it, you can but it just becomes this burden. It becomes this law unto itself whenever we have to achieve these levels, reach these perfections, when we, we have to keep going more and maximizing everything. And, and if we're not driving the right car, if we don't have the perfect home, if we're not getting all the exercises that we need, if we're not eating the right diet, it just becomes this law unto itself, this high anthropology. We have to do it all. And if you don't do it, the subtext then is, well, you're a failure, right? wait, what, you're, you're not maximizing everything? Well, you're, you're a failure. You, you. So we know this. We know the burden of high anthropology, but we are embracing a biblically grounded low anthropology, a low anthropology that says, well, like the bumper sticker on the car I saw actually just this morning driving here. I was driving here and I saw a bumper sticker on the car that said, student driver, please be patient. I was like, low anthropology. Well, of course I'll be patient with a student driver. Of course I'll give them a little bit more space on the road. Of course I'll be a little bit uh, gracious if they swerve into the lane uh, in, I think, in a way that is you know, offensive to me. I think that was a beautifully stated low anthropology. Please be patient, student driver. I kind of wish we could all get a sticker on our chest every day. I got one that said, you know, I voted. And I just thought, what if I got a, what if I got a sticker every day and put it on here and just said, you know, handle with care, you know, damaged goods, <laughs> you know? Like, like can, can we just have a little bit of grace and, and space for everybody who might be going through something underneath the surface that we're not entirely aware of? I mean, think about what just unfolded this morning. A high anthropology would have said this, Chris, where are you? Why aren't you here on time? Uh, you have a responsibility to our church. We have a sound and a media and an online ministry and it needs to get done and people are here. What was a low anthropology? Chris is almost always here on time. He's always so faithful. I mean, he was just here on Friday getting things set up. Well, maybe something happened. Text, call, a few things. 
It took a while. Finally, you get back in touch. Oh, Chris, you were in the hospital. Oh, my goodness, you're having trouble breathing. Oh, my goodness. Oh, do you get it? Do you get where we're going? The high end, you know, if people could just always take that default position of saying, could I just be patient with the student driver? Could I just see people as the damaged goods that we all are in so many ways and have a little bit more patience, a little bit more love, a little bit more grace with one another? Well, last week in our uh, low anthropology series, we looked at the low anthropology of limitation. The fact is that we all have to admit there is a limit to all of our lives. There's a limit to our energies. There's a limit to our abilities. There's a limit to our intellect. There's a limit to life. And the great limiter is, of course, death itself. The great limitation that puts the stop to all of our desires and dreams and hopes and pursuits in this world and in this life, death, the great limiter. But thanks be to God, we have a victor who conquers death and invites us, hallelujah and amen, to eternal life. And we looked and just worshiped Jesus, who, though victor over death, I just, I just can't get over it. I just love it so much. He comes to us how? Gently and humbly. Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God, the perfect one, comes to us gently and humbly. Receive that as a gift, the gentleness, the lowliness, the humility of Christ coming to us. And today, we wanna look into the two wolves that exist in each and every one of us, but we're gonna call it the doubleness that exists in each and every one of us. What is doubleness? Doubleness is this. Doubleness is the war between the wild, destructive, violent wolf in us and the wolf that knows that we should be living a more disciplined, a more virtuous, a more generous, a more loving life. A double life is lying in bed and saying, I should really get some sleep because I know I have to get up early for that meeting in the morning, but I'll just binge watch five more episodes of whatever it is I'm currently binge watching. <laughs> the doubleness that says, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to have seconds knowing full well a little bit later you're gonna sneak down into the kitchen and help yourself to all that you want when nobody else is looking. That doubleness might be that saying, oh no, no, I'm going to refuse the drink publicly, but I'm gonna go home and drink secretly to try and comfort those pains or those difficulties that I'm going with. That doubleness that just tells a lie whenever you tell somebody you're telling them the truth. <laughs> And you know, in the midst of it, you're lying. We have this struggle that Paul points to us of this doubleness that plagues each and every one of our lives. Paul says, I do not understand it. I do not understand me sometimes. There are times in my life when I'm going to be honest, and now I'm just paraphrasing, when I do not do the things that I say I wanna do and that I wanna be about. And there are other times when I'm all about those things that I say I want nothing to do with it. That's the doubleness that plagues our lives. I know as a pastor, I have this desire to get up early in the morning and have my quiet time and my devotion with God. And as a pastor, there should be nobody else who could have more structure in their life to do that. So I try to get up, I try to get awake, and then I try to have an hour of uninterrupted time to just be in prayer and to be in Bible study. But I know so often then my phone will ring and I wanna answer a text and then that text will lead me to checking an email, and that email will lead me to answering something that's happening in the church, and I can find that even my devotion time with God can be thwarted. Ah. 
Did you catch what I just did there, though? That's called a humble brag. Ever heard of a humble brag? Okay, what I told you was all actually true. I really want to have a devotion. I really want to do re be responsible in my job. I really do want to reply to texts and answer emails and be very efficient. But I told you in such a way that what's the takeaway they actually got from that? Oh, George is actually really godly. He wants to have an hour of devotions every morning. Oh, he wants to be a responsible pastor to his church. So, so even in that, even in that, that's the doubleness of life. It is hard to actually even confess something and not have a double edge to it where I want to make myself actually look better on the other side of the confession. Can we be just done with the double-edged confessions? Can we just be done with the humble brags? And anybody who has been in a job interview or interviewed somebody recently, you've probably experienced it. Always comes up in the job interview. So tell us about one of your weaknesses. Oh, I'll tell you about one of my weaknesses. I'm such a workaholic. I just always want to work so hard for my employer. Uh, it's hard for me not to just take work home and to actually just be consumed with and think about it. And I'm sure the employer is saying, oh, that's really a concern for us that you're just going to, if you ever, oh, I have a great weakness. I'm a perfectionist. I just have to work on things until they're just right because I care. Oh, that's just going to be awful. I'm so sorry that you're a perfect. We have trouble actually confessing. Can we just admit that? Maybe that's the first part of confession is the confession. It's really hard for me to actually see my doubleness. It's really hard for me to sometimes see my weaknesses. It's really hard for me to sometimes see this war being waged in me. But if I pause and if I consider it, if I'm honest with myself and I allow Christ's light to shine in me, maybe I can see this doubleness, this war being waged in me, this struggle against good and evil, against light and darkness. And maybe we can finally move on then to real confession to confess that while we profess to be a people of faith, to look at the decisions and the actions and our interactions and recognize we are so often driven by our fears, right? We can confess and profess that we are people who, who live by the law of love, love God and love our neighbor, love the way Jesus taught us to love. And yet those thoughts and those feelings of vile hatred toward others can consume our guts. We can profess to be the people who are driven by the forgiveness that we've received from God and to give forgiveness to others, but to know that that root of bitterness is still growing inside of our lives. We can profess to be a people reconciled to God, but when we're honest, sometimes racist and bigoted thoughts still come creeping into our minds. We can profess to be a people of peace, but we know the violent thoughts that plague us. We can confess to be a people filled with the Holy Spirit and a people who want to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But so often our lives are filled with the sins of envy and pride and lust and gluttony and anger and arrogance and sloth and others. We are invited to begin to confess these things to God as Paul does, because what Paul is actually doing here is very good news. Please do not miss this from this passage that can land on us so deep and so heavy. 
This is an invitation to very good news. This is an invitation. This is not beating us up. God is saying to us, come and lay these burdens, lay this doubleness, lay these feelings, lay these addictions, lay these thoughts, lay these patterns, lay them all before me so that we can begin to experience a more deeper transformation through Christ, our Lord, and our victor. Now, let's be clear about this though. Will we ever be fully freed from this doubleness, from this war that is waged in us? Let's talk about this a bit theologically. What we profess to believe, of course, is that we have definitively been freed from the penalty of sin in our lives when we accept the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ as our justification. Fancy words there, but it goes like this. Jesus, I do not wanna stand my own merit, my own morals, my own thoughts, my own actions, my own behaviors. I do not wanna stand alone before a holy and righteous God and say, I'm going to do it. So God gives us this wonderful invitation. Stand in Jesus Christ, receive the gift of his forgiveness. He has paid the penalty for the sin that plagues all of us. And so we stand in that forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But we have this ongoing process of sanctification. We're trying to grow in our holiness to God. So we are fighting against the power of sin in our lives. Yes, we praise God when we have victory over an area of sin in our lives. And we can celebrate stories of victory over sin in our lives. We can celebrate whenever God helps us move towards more godly character and virtues, when we do actually express those fruits of the spirit more and more in our relationships, but we know that it's a process. And we know, of course, that we will not finally be saved from the presence in this plague of sin until Christ's return. Often in faith, you'll hear a phrase this way, I have been saved from sin by the power of Jesus Christ's atonement in my life. I am being saved from sin by the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, but I will not be fully saved from sin until Christ's return. Make sense? So what Paul is laying out here for us is the fact that yes, we can celebrate our forgiveness and our life in Jesus Christ, but in the moment we are going to be in the midst of a bit of this battle. But now let me say something uh, about this so we understand Romans uh, a little bit deeper. Romans follows a bit of a plot line. Uh, the plot line is actually mirrored in things like the Heidelberg Catechism to talk about sin and salvation and service. That's like the whole outline of the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's very much the outline of the book of Romans. In the first seven chapters, he's dealing with sin. And then in chapters eight through 11, he's expressing glory to God for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And chapter 11 ends with that wonderful doxology about how great and glorious the wisdom and knowledge of God. And then chapters 12 through 16 get on with how do we serve God and live in community. But here's the thing. What we don't see in the catechism, what we don't see in Romans is these clear cut lines. Sin is the old way, I'm totally saved and, say, and, and, and salvation has touched every single area of my life and I'm just fully on forever with, with, with serving God. Now, we know this because he starts chapter seven, brothers and sisters. And in the brothers and sisters, he includes himself. So all I'm saying here is don't fall for the lie of high anthropology. Don't fall for the lie of perfection. Some Christians, I think for the right reasons, for noble and good and godly reasons, have sought perfection. 
Aquinas sought perfection. Gregory of Nicaea sought perfection. Whole schools of theological thought have sought perfection. Wesleyism at different times, Arminianism at different times. The whole holiness movement was pushing us to perfection. And you've got to love that desire. You have to love that heart to want to live a more perfect life for Jesus Christ, right? I think we can honor that heart. We can honor that motive. We can honor that desire to want to live the more holy and perfect life. But I think we have to humbly confess and admit to ourselves and admit before God, we're not going to get there until Christ's retur- until Christ returns and frees us from the very presence of sin in his eternal kingdom. Until that comes, we have to recognize, again, humbly and gently with one another and with ourselves, I'm not going to achieve that perfect life. And if I'm not careful, that doubleness is going to creep in and have victory over my life in so many ways. And so this idea of Christian perfection needs to be tempered, of course, with the reality that yes, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Yes, we are being saved. We pray more and more from the power of sin, but we will not finally be free from sin until Christ returns. And so what Paul does in the midst of this war, in the midst of this struggle, is that he does what the uh, counselors of the psychologists would call disassociation. He takes that sin, that war, that wolf that he sees in his life, and he kind of makes it the other. Now, people with cancer do this all the time. I'm sure all of us know somebody who has struggled with cancer. I hope we know people who've uh, been healed of cancer, and we tragically, of course, know people who've, who've died from cancer. But whenever you're walking with somebody who's going through cancer, it's very natural, it's very instinctive to speak about the cancer as an invader, as an unwelcome guest, as an other. And people actually, very intuitively, they don't define themselves by cancer. They don't say, I am cancer now. No, it's the cancer, the cancer was found in my pancreas, the cancer spread to my liver, the cancer is being treated. They're going to try and remove the cancer. Paul very helpfully, I think here says, let's do that with sin. Let's recognize that the sin is in us, but let's not be defined forever by the sin. Let's try to capture it. Let's try to other it. Let's try to pinpoint it. And whenever we do, we can invite the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be in the process of removing it. I see this cancer again here of anger at work in my life. Holy Spirit, can you begin to remove that anger? Jesus, I see this resentment that I've been holding on to in my life. Can you work with me to forgive and let go of that resentment? Holy Spirit, I, I recognize that, 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 uh, that, that tendency for, for violence and lashing out and screaming or losing my cool. Can you, can you take that and begin to root that and replace that with more of a spirit of love and gentleness and peace and patience with my family, with my coworkers, with myself, with others, with whoever it might be? So he very helpfully helps us to try to remove that sin from our What does he say then at the end? What a wretched man am I? Whew, that sounds like he's being really hard on himself, right? That sounds like one of those really high anthropologies, like, oh, I just haven't done it. I haven't achieved it. I'm not everything I want to be. What a wretched man am I? But you have to love how he immediately turns that right on its tail. Who will rescue me from this body? Uh, Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? 
Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, I started with a story of two wolves, so let me end with a story of my dog. And I invite Kellen and the team to get ready to lead us into a little bit more worship so that we can reflect upon this doubleness that we might need to confess and bring before God that might be at war within us. So I uh, started with that story of the two wolves, and now here's the story of the dog. I resisted being a dog owner for for years, I mean, for all of my life, until about four years ago, we were on one of our mission trips down to New Mexico, and we were at the house of one of the honorary chiefs, and his, his dog had just had this litter of puppies, and uh, he told anybody who wanted to claim a puppy, and my son claimed a puppy, and I was just a pushover for whatever reason. I said, I guess we're bringing home a puppy. And as it turns out, I've fallen in love with this dog. I have an irrational love of this dog. And here's what I've convinced myself, that my dog has an irrational and complete love for me. But I'm telling you the honest truth right now. My dog is plagued with doubleness. My dog is plagued with this doubleness. My dog is a sinner. And here's how I know my dog is a sinner. I was told when I became a dog owner that you need to remain the alpha in the relationship between human and animal. So I was like, all right, that makes sense. I want to be in control of this dog. I want to be in control of my house. So they said, so you need to have sacred space in your house. And the most sacred space then should be your bed in your bedroom. So never let your dog sleep in bed with you. Who here never lets their dog sleep in bed with them? Who here lets their dog sleep? Oh my goodness, you, you're breaking what I was told was the cardinal rule here. Anyways, I live by the rule. I do not, I don't want my dog in bed with me. He sheds too much, that's disgusting. But my dear wife, whom I love, for some reason, she's always in a hurry and she doesn't shut that bedroom door. And then I come home and I walk in and the dog hears that and I'm telling you, without failure, almost every day of my life, I open that door and this dog comes running down before me and he sits in front of me. And if he could speak English, this is what he'd say. Oh, I wasn't just in your bedroom sleeping on your bed, master. <laughs> He's just looking at me like with this guilty caught look in his face. And I say, shame on you. And I try to guilt him and I try to shame him and I try to punish him. And I, no, actually I'm like, there, there, Indy, and if I'm gonna be perfectly honest, I rub his belly and I get him a treat and we roll around on the floor and I love him. Here's the point of this. Guilt can motivate us for a while, right? Guilt can be a great motivator in the short term. Oh, I've got to get over this, this besetting sin in my life. Oh, it just, it just plagues me with guilt. But it seems to run its course. And we get, you ever heard halt? We get, we get hungry, we get angry, we get lonely, we get tired, and, and, and the temptation just seems too strong. We, we, we can let shame try and correct our course for, for, for a season in life. You know, just, oh, I'm so ashamed every time I re-engage in that behavior. I've gotta be a better person, but shame seems to run its course in our lives. 
We can try to penalize ourselves. Uh, you know, okay, if I, I've heard people like, okay, if I smoke, and I'm not gonna like pick on smokers. Oh, if I smoke a cigarette, I have to like, you know, give a dollar like to this charity that I don't like. And so we penalize ourselves. But in the end, people are just like, ah, well, I, I guess whoever's getting all my, we can guilt ourselves, we can shame ourselves, we can try and penalize ourselves. But thanks be to God who comes to us, his son, Jesus Christ, who comes to us. What did we talk about last week? gently and humbly. He invites us not to guilt or more shame or more punishment, but he invites us to the transforming power of his love at work in our lives. So that's my simple encouragement to you, to receive the transforming love of Christ and to welcome the power of his Holy Spirit who can begin to work with us in this process of more deeper confession and transformation so that maybe all those besetting sins that plague us might begin to be replaced, changed, turned over to all those fruits that we know will lead to more glory to God and less doubleness in our lives. And so I know no better place to go to than what I've already just expressed, but to ask that the doubleness in our lives could be replaced with the fruits of the Spirit which singularly point us to the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and work in our lives. Um, I tried not to get too specific today so nobody would feel like they're being pointed out with any particular area of doubleness in your life. But right before I pray here, just a moment, I, I will say this. But if there has been a prick to your conscious, a bit of an uncomfortable moment when you've squirmed in your seat, it, it wasn't because I was trying to like point anybody out or point out some sin you're wrestling with. But it might be the Holy Spirit nudging you. It could very well be the power of God at work in your life saying, I recognize this sin, this war, this wolf in you. Will you bring that to me? Will you confess that before me? And allow me to grow my fruits and my spirit more fully in your life. So if that's any of you today, and it may be all of us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, what appears to me, the profound truth and transparency of scripture that does not deny the wolf that lives in each one of us. That wolf that is that parable tells us is wild and violent and destructive. So I pray that you may conquer the power of that wolf in our lives. You may conquer the power of sin in our lives through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that you will be saving us from the power of that sin at work in our lives through the filling of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Holy Spirit, now that you will grow in us more and more the, shall we say, the, the undoubleness of who you are, that you will fill us with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And God, we look forward to the day and we pray the day when you come and you reign forever and ever in your eternal kingdom. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus.